6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 69 through 72. Well, we're continuing our review of the book of Psalms, and we're completing what's called book two with Psalms 69 through 72. You know, as you've learned, as we've gone through these, you've learned that many of the Psalms seem routine. They're, in some sense, the, the flavor of them is sort of predictable. But there are others, and Psalm 69 will be an example of that, that have some astonishing and distinctive features. And uh, when you're searching the Word of God, God always rewards the diligent. If you put the time in and you chew your cud, if I can use that expression, um, you'll get a reward. And so um, Psalms, of course, just by way of setting the stage, are Israel's hymnal and, they are, and, and they're poetry. But it turns out they're far more than that. It's astonishing to discover the theology and the prophecy that's tucked away in the Psalms. So it's poetry laced with strong theology in some surprising ways. The Hebrew term for the book, of course, is the word that means praises. In fact, 55 of the 155, 150 are addressed to the chief musician. They are intended to be sung. Unfortunately, we've lost the understanding of what the, music, the actual music that accompanied these. The Greek terms are two, a poem to be sung to a stringed instrument is one of them, or a harp, a stringed instrument is the other, but it's from the Greek terms that, w- that we have the English term psalms that, that graces the book that we're studying. There are 150 of them, 73, over half, or virtually half, I should say, is from David. There are several anonymous ones that are also, we strongly suspect, were David's also. There's a dozen uh, uh, to uh, Asaph, the head of David's choir, the sons of Korah, which were also Levitical musicians, a couple to Solomon, and then a few others, even one to Moses, and 48 are unlabeled, and we're left, the, the, we, we've lost the, who the sources really were. But there's also, we discover that the book of Psalms is actually five books. We say there's 66 books in the Bible. Well, if we really broke the, if the book of Psalms really five, so it's really 70 if you want to count it. But if you use that term, you'll confuse people. Everybody assumes Psalms is one book. The first book of Psalms, first 41 Psalms, are book one, if you will. And some people like to call this the Genesis section, if you will, because it's about man. The second book that we're completing tonight is uh, the, the, ex- the second book, book of Exodus, or the Exodus book of Psalms, Leviticus. Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's, this, these five books have been tagged by some scholars, many scholars, by these labels. And in some cases, and you can sort of support them. In other cases, I have to tell you candidly, I don't find those labels that useful. They're not that crisply defined from my perspective, but that's just one voice. Clearly, they are five books. Each one ends with a very peculiar, specific doxology that he marks it. So, so fine. So we're in the second, completing the second book of Psalms. And uh, 
Okay, how do we deal with this? This is not an intellectual exercise. It's a devotional exercise. We're used to taking a book of the Bible, going through it verse by verse expositionally. And that's obviously very, very useful. With Psalms, we need to be consciously uh, uh, aware that it's a devotional experience, not an expositional one. And so, but in looking at it analytically, each one has a past. Many of them we know pretty much, or we can guess, what the situation was that caused David or whoever to pen that psalm. And that's helpful to try to understand the predicament that apparently gave birth to that particular song. But sometimes those are inferential as to what his predicament motives were. The other issue about the psalms is its present implications specifically for Israel. Remember, these are Israel's hymns. And okay, what, they have an implication for Israel today. And we want to understand how the psalm should or might impact Israel today. But most of us are really want to skip ahead and say, okay, how does it affect us personally? And how does this psalm, any particular one you're studying, impact you today? Now, some of them may not be that poignant to you, that meaningful. That's because you may not have gone through the depths that it was designed for. These psalms embrace all of the deep valleys of life and the high points, both. And uh, to the extent that you experience those depths and heights, those psalms become very dear. It's astonishing to go through uh, Lockyer or some of these other anthologies which deal with which psalms were dear to which famous people. It's amazing how many of the great heroes of faith throughout history had the book of Psalms as their dearest possession and a specific psalm that they clung to during their trials. And I haven't bothered to follow that anthology because it doesn't mean much to you unless you're a deep student of history in the first place. So I haven't spent a lot of time on that particular thing. But you need to understand that Psalms are intensely personal, always have been, always will be, and they will be for you too if you spend time with them. But there's another dimension to Psalms that is well-known, and that's the prophetic implications, specifically messianic. There are a group of psalms that are recognized as messianic psalms. They tell us something about the Messiah, prophetically. The ones that we call messianic are those which are quoted as such in the New Testament. So to be a messianic psalm, you generally have one that has been quoted as such from the New Testament. There are many other psalms that are not quoted in the New Testament that are also in the opinion of most scholars, messianic, but they're not called that because they're not quoted as such in the New Testament. Do you follow what I'm saying? And uh, Now tonight we're going to have a strange combination. There's also another kind of prophetic psalm that isn't necessarily directly messianic, but is still uh, prophetic in terms of dispensational. Those that speak of the Great Tribulation or the Marriage Supper of the Lamb or other things. It's astonishing to discover how many psalms are dispensational in their perspective that are missed by many scholars that just don't happen to have a dispensational sensitivity. And so those tend to be a little more speculative. We'll t- touch on some of those as we go. Some are very clear. Some are uh, just suggestive, but we'll touch on that as we go. So I'll, I'm just calling this a devotional parody, and there's different ways to look at each psalm, obviously. But I want to ha- always keep in front of us a caveat, a caution flag, and that is not to get over-analytical about psalms. This is a devotional experience. So I want you to be aware of certain comments, and I'll try to make that as we go, but I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that this is a devotional, not an intellectual experience. Chewing the cud was a a requirement, a specification, 
for clean sacrifices. And if you're going to be a sacrifice before God, if you're giving yourself to the Lord, uh, you need to be clean in the Levitical sense. What does that mean? A lot of different things. But one of it is that the, the clean animals chewed the cud. What we were instructed to do is to eat, digest God's word. Jeremiah says, thy words were found and I did eat them. John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 10, digests the little book and so forth. We need to do that with the Psalms. If you're studying a psalm, what do you do is read it over 10, 20, 30 times and see what happens. It changes its reach into your life. And uh, don't get into analysis paralysis. Guys like me that are engineers by background and so forth have a tendency to dissect and... No, 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 no. Be careful about that. That can blindfold our souls to what the message really is. And uh, what we're interested in is prayerful absorption not intellectual dissection. There's a place for that. It ain't in the book of Psalms normally. What we're really trying to indulge in is a gateway into the presence of God. And tonight, we're going to have an unusual experience at that, one that is, interestingly enough, missed by some of the most interesting scholars that I usually lean on very heavily. The book of Psalms is the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New. In other words, of all the books in the Old Testament quoted the New, Psalms is number one. That surprises many people, more than any other book. Jesus himself said the Psalms spoke about him. Remember on the Emmaus Road, he shared with the disciples there how the Scriptures spoke of him, meaning the Old Testament, the prophets, of course, and, several, and the Psalms. It's amazing to even students of prophecy to discover how much of prophecy is in the Psalms, uniquely in the Psalms. And we're going to have one of those surprises tonight. The book of Psalms constitutes irrefutable testimony to the divine inspiration of the Scriptures because it's detailing of things long before they surface in history. is astonishing. And some of them are even astonishing to this day. We're going to show you things here probably tonight that most people who know their Bible may be surprised by. Okay? Now, these are the ones that are typically listed as messianic. We went to Psalm 2, went through Psalm 22, of course, 23 and 24, that triplet. Um, but anyway, tonight we're going to focus on Psalm 69 and a couple of others, but it's the, it's the centerpiece of tonight's exploration, Psalm 69. And so, the Psalm 69 is quoted in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, and the book of Romans, for starters, okay? And uh, there are also many references to it beyond the places it's actually quoted. Those are just the co direct quotes. But before we get into all of that, what I thought would be useful to do is let's just, without any other prompting, just go through and read it and infer what you can as we go here. I said it's the most quoted. Next to Psalm 22, by the way, it is, Psalm 69 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So right away, you should, it's no surprise that it is recognized by most scholars as messianic. Okay. Psalm 22 deals with the death of Christ. In fact, it reads as if he was dictating it while hanging on the cross. We went through that back then. Psalm 69 deals with not the death, but the life of Christ. But it will give you details that you will not find anywhere else in the Bible. And as I say, it's quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Acts and Romans. Okay, let's just read it through once. The chief musician upon Shoshanim, a psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. 
I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Strange phrase. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. When I wept, I chastened my soul with fasting that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of drunkards. What could that possibly mean? But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord. In an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me. In the truth of thy salvation, deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken my heart. Am I, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat. In my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them. And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate. Let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song, and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bullock that hath horns and hoofs. The humble shall see this and be glad, and that your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not his prisoners. Let the heaven and the earth praise him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion, and he will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed, of, seed also of the servants shall inherit it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. Whew. Okay. Now, it doesn't take a lot of insight to get the feeling that's messianic because here and there you get, it obviously goes beyond some probable horizon of David. It, it reaches 
in, in its scope to the Messiah. No problem so far. The surprise to me was the discovery to me, at least it was new to me, that this also includes something that's nowhere else in the Bible. The so-called silent years of Christ. It's a great messianic psalm, but it appears to deal with these silent years, the early years of Christ. This psalm tells us about the silent years of his childhood and young manhood. The Gospels tell us very little of that. We celebrate Christmas, of course, and Dr. Luke gives us this one incident when he was 12 that we all know about. But uh, we learn nothing about him other than that until he's about 30 years old, right? So we know, we call it the silent years. What happened to him while being raised in Nazareth? This psalm will tell us some things about that, and it was not a happy time. It, but we're going to get some of the details of those early years. There were dark days in Nazareth, as well as it also deals with the dark hours in the cross. You probably picked up some of that as we went. It's classified also as an imprecatory psalm because it's imprecatory prayer. He calls down God's wrath on his enemies. That's imprecatory. And some of his petitions before God are pretty scary if you realize what he's saying. And incidentally, it's from that section, the imprecatory part, that writers often quoted in the New Testament. So we're together, I think, right? And his imprecatory prayer is actually a prayer for justice. Many Christians have a real tough time with imprecatory prayers, where these prayers by David call down this and that on the enemies. They forget that it's a good battle between good and evil and that David's prayer are on behalf of God's interest and the people, not just, they're not personal imprecatory prayers. They may look like that at first until you realize who it is that is asking it. David's the king. But this is a psalm that includes, among other things, his early humiliation. Most of us have no idea, probably never have considered, what did Jesus go through during his first 30 years being raised in Nazareth? And that is, we're going to begin in our consideration up north at Nazareth. We're going to hear the heart sob of a small boy, a teenager, and subsequently a young man. Let's just jump in and see what this is all about. Chief musician upon Shonanim. That's just a word meaning the lily. A lily it's, it's a psalm. It's like the lily of the valley of the rose of Sharon. Altogether lovely, in other words. Say, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. We'll deal with the waters when we get to verse 14. Let's table that for the moment. Verse 2 goes on. Um, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Now, if this is Jesus talking, he's speaking about some pretty dark times. You don't have to get too idiomatic to recognize this. He says, I'm weary of my crying. My throat is dried, mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. I'm going to suggest for reasons that we're going to come to that we're going to get a glimpse of his first 30 years. They were not free of pain. Before I go on, let me ask a review question. What is the, considered the most painful sin? Beg your pardon? Gossip. Gossip has probably caused more pain than any other single sin around. Gossip. Let's keep that in mind as we go forward here. The psalmist continues, They that hate me without cause are more than the hairs of mine head. That's a lot. 
They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. Jesus quotes this verse in John chapter 15, verse 25, applying it to himself. So our presumption that this is messianic is not contrived. John 15, 25, But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. He's in effect quoting from Psalm 69. Okay. Romans 3.24 says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing there. What does he mean, being justified freely? What does that mean? Being justified freely is the same as being justified without a cause. We're being justified freely. We may miss, miss the sense of that. We're being justified without any basis, you know, without, without a cause. The Lord did not find any merit at all in me. The Lord justified me, not because I had any merit at all. That's what being justified freely means. He justified me without a cause within me. This psalm that we just read tells us that they hated Jesus without a cause. Why? They hated him without a cause that you and I might be justified without a cause. That's what Paul is in fact pointing out. He's linking that up. We need to understand that his darkness is our light. His Sacrifice is our benefit, and that's going to play out as we go here. Verse 5, Psalmist says, O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Sins, can this still be messianic? Absolutely. How can this apply to the Lord? How can this apply to the Lord? He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, right? Not quite. The last few hours on the cross... He became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, very key. He was made sin for us. We have no ability to grasp what that really means. That a holy God incarnate could be made sin on our behalf. That's one of the greatest mysteries in the scripture. Even Socrates said, it may be possible that God can forgive sins, but I don't see how. He understood the predicament. Anyway, remember what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane several times? Let this cup pass, right? What cup? What cup should be passed? The cup of sin, which was my cup, and your cup of iniquity, is what he sought to escape if it were possible. If there's any other way, let me, let's take it. Nevertheless, he said, my will not, thy will not mine be done. Let's continue with the psalm. Back to Psalm 69. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel, because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. Now what you and I probably have never paused to consider, when did shame cover his faith? Most of would try to scan the Gospels and fit part of his ministry period, maybe. We're overlooking 30 years of shame covering his face. What are we getting at? He'll explain here in the next, next week. There are two reasons he's bearing this, by the way. One is that they hated him because of who he was. Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, has a number of minor defects, but the biggest defect is it doesn't communicate who he was. That's the whole point. And he came. What did he come to do? To take a lowly, humble place on the earth. What an interesting con con contrast that is. 
But here's the verse that really arrested my attention that I had never noticed before and most scholars don't pick up on. Psalm, eight, uh, Psalm 69, verse 8. Psalm says, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Now this verse tells us a lot that we don't know by any other thing in the scripture. It's giving us insight that's unique, uniquely in the Bible right here. I want you to picture the kids growing up. How many brothers did he have? Four, half, half brothers you might say, right? James, Judas, and Joseph said to her, Mother, we heard somebody say that Jesus is not really our brother. They said nobody knows who his father is. Can you picture that? You know, you know how kids can be? Can you imagine those kids coming back from a play yard? Hey, mommy, who is Jesus' father? Nobody knows, they say. Do, do, can you get the picture how his mother and his brothers grew up as kids under this cloud of Jesus' apparent illegitimacy? And that's a small town. That's a culture that wasn't as enlightened as ours. And you realize I'm being facetious. You know, I often wonder how it must have been interesting for his half-brothers when they discover that this nut that they were half-brother really was the Messiah. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Two of them, James and Jude, wrote books in the New Testament. They become believers after the resurrection. Boy, it must have been interesting for them to grow up. Because they, grew, they, they, they knew his nuances, his body language, the glimmer in his eye on a, on a, on a, on a, on a casual expression, Can you, reflecting those 30 years. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music